Hello, and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I'm Graham Davis, the digital editor of the Investors Chronicle, standing in again this week for our editor, John Human, who's still missing in action. Joining me today is James Norrington. How are you, James? I'm good, Graham. How are you? Very well, thank you. And uh, over the phone line, we've got Alex Newman. Hi, how's it going there? We're going to come on to what is a really fascinating feature that you guys have both written in a little while. First of all, I just wanted to look at the news this week and focus on on what's been going on. The the markets this week following the G20, which basically concluded with very little concrete coming out of it at all. Um, The FTSE 100 hit an 11-month high this week. American indices have been setting new records on an almost daily basis, and all of it built on what most people probably think of fairly rocky foundations. Talking of shaky foundations, um, let's, let's have a quick look at the news this week. Alex, in particular... I wanted you to tell us a little bit more about Funding Circle. This is a peer-to-peer lender. First of all, for those who, who may not be aware of it, I mean, this this was pretty big news when it came to market last October and raised a decent chunk of money. First of all, let's go back to the beginning. What does it actually do? Yeah, so I, I mean, Funding Circle, I mean, some of our uh, some of our listeners may, may even be invested through the platform that Funding Circle has. I mean, hopefully fewer are invested in the uh, in the company itself. But they, I mean, it's the, the way to look at it is it's sort of a peer-to-peer lender and a little bit like a debt-focused crowdfunding uh, outfit. So if you're a small business, you can apply for a loan through their site uh, and they do the, the vetting and underwriting and then they link them the, the small business with funds of a, a pools of investors who who earn interest. I mean, currently on the website, I think it's between four point five and six point five six point five percent, and so they match those match those two groups. Obviously, the uh, that's that's a higher rate than uh, any savings account you're going to get at the moment, and presumably for you know slightly lower risk than you might find from equities. On the other side of it. Um, we have this supposed dearth of, of lending to small businesses. So that's the idea of Funding Circle. As you said, it came to market last last October. I think its valuation was something like $1.5 billion, raised $300 million. This is a big company. So we're talking, yeah. it, it provides corporate loans only. It's not lending to individuals. No, it's 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 primarily focused on SME businesses, so small small and medium enterprises. Okay, so there's a, so there's a dearth of lending in that area, but yeah. unfortunately... What's happened? I mean, what was the news this week? Its shares got hammered. Yeah, so I mean, the, the shares really have been hammered since day one. So on the the IPO, they fell pretty heavily, which is really really strange situation. I mean, we, obviously, we had the Uber situation in in New York last month when their their shares immediately fell below the um, the listing price. But I mean, the, the share fall was was pretty terrible um, back in October. So the the reason for the recent woes, and particularly this week was it used a first half training update to essentially halve its full year revenue growth forecast to 20%. So it had been forecasting 40% um, revenue growth this year. It's a really bad sign for the company because, okay, it's loss making. Investors knew that when when it listed. But if you're, you know, if you're growing the speed that Funding Circle has been in the, in the past few years, you're prepared to put up with that because presumably you're taking ever greater market share and you're only ever accelerating the, the arrival of the day when you, you will actually generate cash. So to significantly con- contract your expectations for revenues is a really bad sign. The reasons they, they, they gave for this was uh, essentially an increased uncertainty economic, economic outlook for uh, for. Loans, and they've also tightened their lending criteria a little bit to high-risk businesses. So, um, not growing really at the clip that they said uh, or they they envisioned uh, when they listed 
um, less than a year ago. Presumably this means it's going to take a lot longer to get to profitability. This is the big question. I mean, on one level, tightening credit requirements and uh, improving the, uh, you know, raising the lending criteria, you'd think then that you would avoid some, potentially some impairment losses and that might in, in turn boost the the appeal of the, uh, of, of the lending books to investors. But yeah, I mean, if it's going to be a slower slower route, they're spending so much on expanding spanning the business, then it really does raise questions over profitability. I think Numis is their, their, one of the uh, funding houses which cover, covers them. I think they had a slight pre-tax profit forecast for 2021. So that's, yeah, that's three full years after, uh, after listing. I mean, I think now that probably looks a little bit optimistic, I'd yeah. say. And then you've got the obvious questions are, is it going to, at what point, is it going to have to potentially raise funds again, you know, three years down the, the line uh, if, it's, if it's growing at a much slower rate? Yeah. I mean, is, it, is this an existential crisis? Uh, not at the moment, because, I mean, it was, they're still pretty cashed up. And obviously, there's, you know, there's a huge demand for uh, from investors for their loan pools that they can get exposure to. But I, re- I mean, they're really learning the hard way that that demand for loans isn't automatic. So, I mean, small business small businesses will also make their own their own calls. And if they're worried about the economic environment, they're less likely to want to double down on expansion plans. They may feel a bit more nervous about about going to a lender, whether that's a high street bank or you know one of these sort of innovative providers of finance like uh, like Funding Circle. So, in that sense, it's, it's uh, a real concern, and I'm not quite sure the route from. Here it's uh, it's I think the shares are sort of down two thirds on their listing price, but definitely looks like a sort of falling knife scenario rather than a bargain basement victory for um uh, for potential invest- investors. So we we have them on a sell rating, but we'd certainly steer clear. Yep. Regarding finally on this one, what does what does yeah. Funding Circle need to succeed? Is it is this just a scale business? It just simply needs the scale, or can it do anything else? Scale is one question, uh, and and they have been expanding into uh, uh, other countries. The other sort of medium term, I suppose, focus they, they they're pushing towards is to is to gradually automate more and more of their underwriting. So I think they had a plan for by the end, you know, by twenty twenty, something like fifty percent of new loans would be um, automated, and obviously that's gonna that's gonna bring you know economies of scale and reduce costs. Massively, if you can automate the the lending process, then you cut out a huge uh, a huge cost base. But I mean, given given their ability to deliver deli- deliver their business plan to date as a listed company, I mean, I think that looks a little fanciful at the moment. But yeah, I mean, there's obviously an opportunity there. It's uh, it's obviously le- the the game of lending is um, sometimes slower than than the high growth that they have uh, so far shown. Really. Okay, we're going to move on to that automation in in in, in fintech a little bit later with James yeah. uh, actually and yourself talking about the the feature. But first of all, I just wanted to quickly stick with uh, the financials and looking. Obviously, the Woodford saga is dominating the funds world. Rumbled up yeah. this week. Uh, his equity income fund has been gated for another twenty eight days. He's also talking about changes at the Patient Capital Investment Trust, job losses at Woodford HQ. Yeah. Uh, but the question is: Is the cult of the star fund manager dead? This week, there's a, a significant move at Jupiter Fund Management involving yeah. one of their star fund managers. So, tell us a little bit more about Alexander Darwell's decision to leave Jupiter. 
Yeah, so I mean, this has been this has been well flagged. I mean, Alexander Darwell, he is the uh, manager of the European funds at Jupiter. So you've you've got the the two open ended funds, the um, just the European fund and the European Growth Fund. In April, it was announced by Jupiter that he was going to uh, he wanted to step down from managing those funds. So people already knew this was this was coming. His his replacements have already been announced, but he's setting up on his own. Yes. What's new this this week is that he he and a, and, a, and a few others from the Jupiter team are going to be setting up a new firm, Devon Equity Management, and it looks like at the moment he's going to be taking uh, his uh, really highly rated, though uh, fairly high fee, Jupiter European Opportunities Fund with him. That's obviously uh, subject to the approval of of the the funds um, board, um, but it would mean that a, a relatively high management fee which is attached to this fund because i mean it's his track record is is really stellar and he's got lots and lots of followers is potentially now migrating um outside of jupiter if uh devon equity management gets appointed uh, to, to to run it which it looks like at this stage is is likely yeah now, that, now that's an investment trust so that can be moved fairly easily if the board agree to it yes um, he has billions and billions under management within Unit trusts in Jupiter, they can't be moved, though, can they? I think the last count is 5.5 billion European uh, fund and the 2.4 billion European growth fund. Uh, they are staying put. They have new managers have, have been appointed uh, there. And he's also signed as part of what looks like a, a fairly amicable managed exit. He's, he's signed uh, a deal to not compete with, with Jupiter for the next two years, which would suggest that He's going to be focused on the the European Opportunities uh, Fund primarily for the time being. For investors in Jupiter, it's it's still, I mean, notwithstanding the fact that a lot of money remains with the business, it's not great news for Jupiter, is it? No, I mean it's um, it's not necessarily disaster, but it does it does come in the wake of um, some uh, outflows from their funds. There have definitely been some questions over the bond fund where there's been. There's been some some outflows over the last year, so the timing's not great, and it's it's sort of a knock to the brand, I suppose, is the best way to put it, which kind of explains why on Tuesday when this this was all sort of fully made clear to the market, the shares dropped nine percent. I mean, I think Numis calculate that the the Jupiter European Opportunity Fund only makes something like a three percent contribution to pre-tax profit. That that said, I mean it's 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 clearly a loss to have one of your star uh, names go, and to also want to set set up uh, on his own and and really have a, the sort of um, controlling hand in being able to to take a, a following with him is is uh, yeah is, is is definitely a hit to the to the brand. Okay, there's one to watch out for there. So he's yeah. he's calling his new fund management company Devon Investment Management rather than Darwell Investment Management. I can't remember who it was said in in the in the sort of flurry of quotes over the last uh, month that you should never uh, trust, uh, uh, never buy a fund named after the manager. But yeah, that wouldn't be a, it. Wouldn't be an amazing PR move at this stage. And <laughs> um, that I mean, that said, there's a serious point here. I'm sure Leonora will expand on this when they if they talk about this tomorrow in their in their funds podcast. But I mean, one, one of the questions about setting up a boutique fund on your own is that you you know you do lose something and that is presumably the the risk and compliance oversight 
that a, that a fund manager like Jupiter has. And, and you know, that's that's clearly been one of the talking points from the five years since Neil Woodford moved from, from Invesco to, to set up his own fund. And was the oversight appropriate there? So that is another question, I, I suppose, which, you know, is worth investors either in the funds or, or Jupiter bearing in mind uh, over the next few months. Okay, thanks, Alex. Um, now, yourself and James have been busy this week putting together this fantastic feature, FinTech's Big Bang. Uh, FinTech, we hear a lot about it. For the un- uninitiated, what is FinTech? Okay, so, uh, I mean, a very loosely defined term. But at the simplest level, the simplest way to think about probably it's the use of technology in financial services. Um, okay, that doesn't get us too far <laughs> because, because technology means almost anything and financial services encompasses, encompasses everything from you know your current account to uh, derivatives trading insurance cross border payments you name it so but when we we're talking about fintech we we're, we're really looking at the ways that financial services companies and ways of doing finance are being disrupted by new digital technology and also consumer behavior so to take one example an example is you know often help to understand what what we're talking about here there's a uk based private company a fintech called transferwise and they've come up with this pretty novel and elegant solution to cross border transfers into foreign currency. So at the moment, it's very expensive. Uh, it comes with high charges for um, customers and, you know, there's sometimes errors with it. They, the way they do it essentially is never letting a payment cross a border. So you make a payment to a transfer bank account in the UK uh, and transfer wise, if you're sending it to me in Spain, will we'll pay it out of their uh, their Spanish account. That reduces the, you know, the, the, the cost of the transaction by 90%. It's great for the customer. It's an elegant solution using digital technology and, and, and smart mobile apps to bring it down costs. Uh, and that's just that's one example of, of how a big revenue stream for the incumbent financial system can essentially get brushed aside in, in a matter of a, a couple of years. So, so it's, not, it's, it's not reinventing yeah. the wheel. It's, it's doing things uh, more efficiently. Well, I, I mean, it's it's both. I mean, sure, James will come on some of the technologies which are really invent, reinventing the wheel. But um, many many of the applications currently in fintech are instances of small, very nimble niche startups, essentially, um, just attacking one problem or one uh, one area uh, of, of a bank's act or financial services act, uh, company's activities and just perfecting it really. Yeah, and I also, I mean, it was in, what I find interesting was you, you talk about these neo banks, people like Monzo, Starling, uh, and the like, who are growing fast and trying to sort of replace the whole service of a, of a retail bank. Can they do that, or will they just get bought up by the big banks? Yeah, I, I mean, that's really really interesting question on the neo banks. I mean, the the threat the threat here from neo banks, especially some we're looking at, yeah, Monzo, Starling Bank, and N twenty six. Um, there are companies which can, you know, they're private largely. They can sustain losses for years because they can pull in lots of capital, lots of customers with loss-leading product lines, and just very successfully. And you know, often they have better branding, and of course, the legacy branding of high street banking is not terrific. I mean, they nearly destroyed the world uh, ten years ago. So, um, and they're also more nimble. And in terms of their cost bases, they don't have these massive legacy IT systems. So they're able to gain scale quite quickly. And with some of the technology, you know, for example, with TransferWise and across-border remittances, or just having better mobile apps, 
uh, or well-integrated business payments software. Um, there's, you know, there's there's a real challenge here. Whether they'll get swallowed up, I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, M and A in in the banking sector, in particular, is has just been a you know it's been a bit of a dead end when trying to buy buy scale and and increase customer numbers. I'm, I'm not so sure about that question, but they're obviously posing a serious challenge either through cannibalization of the market or really head on just just um just potentially um moving to profitability in, in, the, in the in the coming years because the big i mean the big banks are spending a huge amount on fintech themselves a, a lot of money so i mean i think bank, bank of america jp morgan uh, public capital put a note, note out saying they're investing something like three billion dollars a year i mean a good chunk of the three billion pounds lloyd's has committed between 2018 and 2020 is going to go on digital innovation I mean, they 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 see the threat very clearly, and they and they're responding to it. So this, I mean, really one of the the top three priorities for banks, incumbent banks at the moment, is to d- defend their turf uh, and spend lots. The the really big question here is spending money to upgrade your customers' digital experience is particularly for an investor in the incumbents. The, I think the key question here is, is is whether spending money to upgrade your customers' digital experience is a lesser investment pro- proposition than, you know, if you're essentially keeping up uh, or responding to the competition, you know, because they're, they're, they're essentially up against everyone who's trying to out-innovate them. That seems like a hard position longer term to defend. Good news versus consumers, though. Well, yes, yeah, yeah, which is, which is not a bad thing. Mm. Now it's interesting that you mentioned that private. Um, uh, a lot, a lot of these companies are private, so there aren't that many ways into it. There's a couple of ways into it which you have detailed in the feature through through companies or primarily funds. Um, I'm going to leave that for readers to find out for themselves, yeah. um, because I wanted to move on to to bring James in here. James, you've looked more at um, uh, this technological blockchain. Uh, and the way that can disrupt certainly the financial sector. Tell me a bit more about blockchain. So blockchain is it's basically it's a peer to peer network of, of of computer nodes that verify transactions with known algorithms. And once they're verified, they become a block and become part of a ledger, which is uh, which is permanent and unalterable. Um, and what this does is uh, it opens up a whole new world in in terms of um, verifying transactions. It's the the cornerstone of um, of, of digital currencies. Facebook launching uh, announced that it tends to in- launch its Libra currency in 2020. And this is um, this is potentially it's a, it's a game changer for the whole financial system. And what is the I mean this disruption for the wider financial sector? What what is blockchain going to do? And who is who is driving this? Well, there's there's there's, there's a couple of so. Um, um, I spoke to one analyst um, who who said that there's been a lot of um, I won't use his full word, but he it, it started with bull um, spoken about um, about about blockchain and its applications. But but where we will see it is so for example, if we look at settlement custody of, of assets, um, huge. If you think about creation redemption of ETF units, m- multinational um, investing across borders, it, you know the systems we have like Crest, for example, which is the custody and settlement system that we've had in the UK for securities or or um, uh, or Euroclear, they've been around since the early 90s. Um, so, so this is improving. This will create real back office efficiencies um, for financial houses. So it will it will actually, it potentially creates a, a profit uplift for those shares. I mean, I don't know whether those savings, I'm quite cynical whether those savings get passed on to retail investors, but if your shareholders in an asset manager, then potentially um, it, it it creates some efficiencies and, uh, and it increases the value of those companies potentially. Sorry, because you, you've got a figure in here of, I mean, this is a huge figure. Figure in here of, of of AI technologies contributing fifteen point seven trillion dollars by twenty thirty. Now, when you people talk about AI, 
people think about little robots stealing, stealing your, your job in, in the car plant, but actually what we're talking about is more practical, real world. Well, AI, so, so, so AI, so blockchain is one, one of the big mm. aspects of, of, of fintech. AI, artificial intelligence is the other one which, which captures headlines. Now, that figure, you know, you've got to sort of think about how it's calculated, but really it's so large because um, this is already happening. Uh, companies like Amazon, Google, they're already using AI. It's about creating efficiencies. It's not necessarily um, Arnold Schwarzenegger coming to, to, to murder you in, a, in a, an early life. It's um, it's uh, artificial intelligence is about um, just, you know, taking the, the rigmarole out of your day-to-day work. Um, it, it's, it's, it's no company really now sort of very few companies will, will employ people to do data input. But what this does is, is, it, is it the person at the end of that, that process, you know, rather than, the, the, than their time being taken gathering data and forming information, the AI will do that. And it, gives, it frees up people to, to use um, their intelligence to, um, uh, to actually to put information to use and, and, and make use of analysis to, to, to make things more efficient. And that, that's why that, that figure, I think, is so big. I mean, one of the, the companies I've looked at in detail, which is a holding of, um, of, of Augmentum Fintech, which is one of the venture capital trusts that we, we list in the feature, uh, there's a company called Provise, which um, which actually uses AI to 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 speed up payment of invoices. And that 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 frees up working capital, um, and, and it, it, it shortens working capital cycles, and it and it makes potentially it, it's it's good for for banks because it means that that lending to small companies becomes less risky because um, you know the, the, the cash flows improved, so they're they're less likely to go bust. Um, so this is where the uplift comes from. This is where so when we see these gargantuan figures, um, uh, I think it, it's because you know this is something that's already starting to to be introduced in, into our day-to-day lives and it, and it creates real efficiencies and productivity gains. I guess even in that example you gave there, that's, that's a huge market globally. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's um, $2.4 trillion of unserved finance demand. So if you're uh, able to use these techniques... Exactly, and and uh, yeah, so so banks, for example, um, p- potentially. But we look at when we're assessing the risk of a bank, we would look at um, assets to equity assets. For for a bank, of course, are are its loans, so are actually mm. risky, or the um, or the you know the race the, the ratio of deposits of loans to deposits. Now, those thresholds can be higher if 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 it's less risky to lend. Yep. Um, so, so you know, this potentially, we talk about fintech being disruptive for banks, incumbent banks, um, and, and Alex, Alex makes this point in the feature as well. Incumbent banks are actually potentially um, winners from fintech. It's, it's, it's disruptive in terms of the way we do things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to kill these companies. Even Facebook um, with the Libra currency, they're, they're, they're bringing in partners that are, that are payment providers, that are banks, because you know they see they, you know, they, they as part of the ecosystem, they, they see um, banks having a role in this. Um, so um, we talk about disruption. It's an earnings uplifter potentially for banks um, and big tech. So it's, it's quite fascinating. Indeed, and the, the the way this feature's been set out with the, the graphics here showing us the anatomy of a blockchain certainly helped me understand it. But thank you for your explanation as well, James. It is interesting that yeah, we talk about Facebook launching a currency um, and we talk about these young, uh, small, up-and-coming businesses, but MasterCard, PayPal, Visa, these guys are all in this in this game as well and they'll be at the forefront of it. Oh, they're, they're all over it. I mean, it's, it's their core business and they can't afford not to be all over it. And it's interesting as well, sort of um, uh, to, to, to Alex's points about these small small startups. So there's, there's still big moats. Banks uh, and, and existing financial um, institutions, they have big moats. I mean, it, at the end of the day, the reason that, that some of the challenger banks have run into to trouble is, is, a, is a very core tenant of, of banking industry is is access to funding you know since since the term funding scheme was, was switched off which which was brought in they've they've struggled um and they've you know sort of they've kept their 
companies have had to go back and tapping equity markets for funding again and again. Um, by having sort of a, you know, a, a smart app and a good user experience, you know, these fundamental issues aren't washed away. Now, something like uh, digital currency uh, coming online and, and creating new sources of funding potentially that is maybe more of a game changer but that's, that's still a long way off and the big players are are getting involved in this at an early stage yep. so they, they they're protecting themselves indeed fascinating stuff thank you very much both of you and i would you know highly recommend people spend time to read this it, it certainly taught taught me a lot elsewhere in this week's issue companies editor mark robinson has looked at the private equity backed bid for merlin entertainments and questioned whether it is lower than investors could have expected algae hall's stock screen this week looks at six large cap quality plays phil oakley has looked at smith and nephew and asks whether it is a hunter or will find itself hunted and john barron the ever popular john barron his investment trust portfolio this month examines the case for exposure to japan it is a jam-packed issue this week available at all good news agents and online at www.investorschronicle.co.uk thank you both uh, alex and james for your contributions and thanks for listening goodbye planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.